The word sanctions has become a common part of the global political discourse ever since Russia invaded Ukraine in February of this year. More recently in Pakistan, we've been hearing this uh, term a lot with regards to the potential for trade between Pakistan and Iran, and especially with regards to potential um, oil import deals between Pakistan and Russia. My name is Mubashir and I'm joined today by Noor Fatma, and today we are trying to understand the global sanctions regime. Uh, so Noor, before we begin, why don't you give our audience a brief overview of what sanctions are and why are they imposed? Thank you for the introduction, uh, Mubashir. Sanctions, uh, this is a very recent development in global politics, and we see that the sanctions regimes that are placed by countries and international organizations, that they're gaining currency over the years. So I feel like this is a very pertinent topic to discuss as well. Sanctions are essentially defined as non-armed coercive measures that are achieved to that are sorry imposed to achieve certain goals so the key key terms here are non-armed which means that there's no war going on there's no invasion when you impose a sanction you're not uh, issuing a declaration of war essentially uh, although this is with this carries its own caveats because countries interpret this term differently but essentially Countries are trying to control and regulate the behavior of other countries by primarily imposing economic measures. And that could be um, certain restrictions uh, in when it comes to trade. That could be blanket, ba blanket bans. That could be um, some countries saying that they will completely and entirely isolate uh, a country or they could be uh, aiming at certain, certain uh, targeted sectors that are uh, at the center of the uh, set activities and so on and so forth. And sanctions are basically imposed to achieve either narrow policy objectives or broader policy objectives. So uh, this is something that's uh, the reason why it's confusing and it's a bit of a conundrum to understand is we have every kind of sanction there is. And uh, it's more, I personally feel it's more it's better to understand it from a structural perspective. So how widely is it applied? And then from there, go on to how narrow it can also be applied and see how that impacts countries and individuals and also just shapes the global uh, order as right. a result. So I hope that was helpful. It, it's a quite a nebulous term. But... No, no. Um, no, and I think you've introduced as well. But I, I, I was just wondering, um, have sanctions always been part of you know, um, part of uh, the foreign policy toolkit, if you want to call it, um, for the powers, or is it a more recent development with regard, like, and when I say recent, I mean in terms of... In the past hundred years. Yeah, so. in the past hundred years. So um, it's a bit of both. We see some form of sanctions being, being imposed uh, way back in the past, uh, in the 16th and 17th century. Really? But yeah, but those were always accompanied by military activities right. happening on ground. So sanctions by themselves were not really considered. There were some blockades going on. There were other uh, economic uh, measures that were being taken against countries to control their behavior. Um, but they were usually either for territorial gain or they accompanied some kind of a military campaign. Right. Uh, in the past hundred years, and of course, it's pertinent to mention the the signing of the UN Charter as well. Because when uh, that essentially outlawed the use of force, like exactly, for, except in exceptional circumstances. It, but, 
Precisely. So so that's where sanctions are also, they kind of gain their legitimacy. Uh, it's mentioned under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter as well, that uh, states will be, uh, when there's a threat to international peace and security, there uh, are leeways, there are, sorry, opportunities where states can impose non-armed coercive measures um, and that includes the use of economic sanctions as well. And we see that ever since that came into being, there has been more of a leaning towards uh, choking a country economically by imposing sanctions. And that has the, the even the application of that has changed a lot, especially in the past, I would say, 30 years or so from 1990 onwards. We have concrete examples uh, following the post, uh, f- following the Cold War, I would say, um, that's the best time to study uh, such uh, regimes because they are supposedly a little bit free from the political impetuses of the Cold War. Right. So from 1990 onwards, we have concrete examples of sanctions regime and their impact and their implications when they're broadly applied, what effects they have on the sanctioned state, on the civilians within the sanctioned state, are they are they efficacious enough? Have do they achieve their policy objectives? And from there, we have the nine nine eleven attacks, the September eleven attacks, where the sanctions regime again evolved very quickly to meet the new challenges of that age. And from there, we have uh, some. We have what we have now, which the Russia-Ukraine is a great example to study. The Iranian sanctions are also a great example of the multifocal ways of imposing sanctions. So there has been a bit of an evolution. Um, I would say from 1990 onwards would be the best part, the best uh, time frame to study sanctions. And and I think it's interesting that you mentioned the post-Cold War era in this. And, you know, there's always this question of the efficacy of sanctions as a tool of foreign policy. And a lot of uh, researchers have uh, worked in great detail on this. There's, there was one study back in the 90s. It's commonly known as the HSE study, yeah. named after the three authors. And they basically found out that in their analysis, they said that, oh, in they, we looked at 115 cases of sanctions. And out of those, there were 40 cases in which sanctions were effective, which is like, pretty effective when when you look at uh, in terms of foreign policy but then this was followed up by uh, so robert pape did a follow-up study to this and he once he adjusted the metrics he was like no in reality only five of those 115 cases were uh cases of effective sanctions he also added and based on what you said earlier like without the threat of use of force because in in the previous study the hse study 18 out of the 40 cases in which they said were successful involved the use of force Mm -hmm. so um so that really brings the question, like, how, how effective are they? And it's it's interesting that you say the post-Cold War era, because when we look at the global order between 1945 and, and the fall of the Soviet Union, yeah. and if we look at the world order now with, with the rise of China and the resurgence of Russia, yeah. the one thing that the, the current order gives countries is an alternate pathway, right? So between, between uh, so the post-1990, the post-Cold War era, the US was the global superpower. So it's, you couldn't really you know, uh, have them be on their wrong side. There was no China to rescue you. There was no Russia to rescue you. Mm -hmm. Before that, countries could align themselves with the Soviet Union. Now, countries can align themselves with China or with Russia. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the current Ukrainian crisis. And yes, the West is trying to sanction um, uh, sanction Russia. But then I think a few days back, we saw 
um, Russia, uh, Russian, Chinese, and Iranian leadership. They were meeting together, and, yep. and even and even then, when I look at the case of Iran, which uh, I remember when after the in the final years of the Trump pre- Trump presidency, they said we are going to impose the most stringent sanctions on Iran ever. But then they, uh, because of geopolitics, they end up giving India a waiver to you know carry on oil trade with uh, with Iran. China, I think, still gets if I'm yeah. if I'm not if I'm not wrong. And it, the freedom to use the Bandar Abbas port in Iran. Is right. Fine. So, like in a way, the countries that are supposed to underpin the the global order, they are themselves undermining it by. That's right. And and we and you know they they say that oh we'll strangle or to use or your word like economically choke the country, mm-hmm. but there is another argument that sanctions actually force the country to be self sufficient. Yeah, and uh, very much so. We've seen sanctions on Cuba. We've seen sanctions on North Korea. We've seen sanctions on Iran, mm-hmm. and in some ways they're doing better than uh, like in in terms of like their growth and research and develop in their own countries and countries which are not facing a lot of sanctions. Yeah. Perhaps we can even add Pakistan to that list. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very interesting thing you've mentioned and I'm glad you've brought it up because we're also, um, the discourse that we consume uh, through our news media outlets and even our academia, uh, I feel like there's a lot of justification of the Western sanctions regimes and uh, the studies that you've mentioned are highly, highly relevant because what governments eventually end up doing at times is they change the goalposts in order to prove that their sanctions regime or whatever actions that they have taken were successful. And that's yeah. very common. That's a very common practice. And that's what governments do. They have their own narratives backing uh, that up. Uh, and again, that really delves into the politics, politics part of the debate. Yeah. Um, Well, what you've mentioned here about the efficacy of sanctions, um, I really feel like it's this kind of ties into how sanctions are applied. So there's a there is a proper understanding of sanctions design. So in the past and by past, I mean the recent past, say from the early 1990s, we saw sanctions regimes that were that that comprised comprehensive sanctioning. So they would take one country, for example, Iraq, and they would apply every manner of sanctions on Iraqi citizens, on Iraqi industries, on Iraqi politicians, everybody from the government to the civilian and the country itself in a bid to isolate that country. And what we saw from that was an intense humanitarian crisis where close to half a million children were de- were they died because they were deprived of critical medicines and vaccines i think and even in the in the covid pandemic this case was like highlighted oh what about countries that are facing sanctions how yeah. do they access things like the uh, covid-19 vaccine yeah. yeah so yeah that's that's a very relevant point the humanitarian impact of all these sanctions yeah so from and i think it was uh, it carried a lot of uh, it carried a lot of weight for the politicians, um, the fact that half a million children were dead. And I remember seeing an interview where Madeleine Albright was sort of, you know, she was conflicted about this, but then she had to fall back and justify that, that, you know, the imposition of sanctions was justified and that was just a price to pay. But that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, really illuminated the dark side of having such comprehensive sanctions because, Belligerent Iraq remained belligerent Iraq. 
and it didn't dissuade the Saddam Hussein regime from what it was trying to do at that point. Um, So the question was, when so many civilians are dead and you're imposing sanctions, you are creating a narrative within the country of us versus the world. And that's only going to fuel the belligerency rather than contain it. So what came out from there was this understanding in the West, particularly that blanket sanctioning will not work. Rather, it is more pertinent to sanction either key sectors of the economy. So, for example, if you are an oil exporting state, the oil sector, um, in order to choke your ability to buy arms so that a war can continue, they're using the exact same terminology and the exact same rationale for the Russia sanctions now as well. They feel that if Russian Russian energy exports can be outlawed, then um, which is I see you smiling. It's it's ironic because like so since since, <laughs> since the war broke out, all the all the European countries and even yeah. um, even countries like India who did not depend so much on Russian oil, but it was did available on the cheap. They're they're filling their reserves yeah. with, exactly. with with cheap Russian oil, exactly. and even exactly. if now they do bring in the sanctions, it's kind of hypocritical. For like five six months, you've been utilizing. Yeah. Uh, like back then there were there was no talk of sanctions mm-hmm. you were sanctioning individuals yes their yes. industries maybe yes but because you depend on that energy mm-hmm. so it wasn't really a principal stance but yeah. now when you realize okay fine we i think we'll be able to manage so let's let's just sanction russia but even with european the european union for example russian the dependency on russian energy exports is so deep that they are not able to move away from them immediately so they are saying that it'll take us two years three years five years ten years down the line to completely become non-dependent on russian energy and that kind of shows you also like going back to the political debate that you know when you rely on new liberalism so much and when you have really integrated your economies and you have really uh, relied on trade relations for so long it's so it's not that easy to break away from them and it's not that easy on your own people we see inflation we see global inflation in countries that might have never had such high inflation ever before record breaking levels of inflation and uh, key energy prices going up all because of a sanctions regime that may or may not be working especially as you say when russia is saying oh we had the highest number of uh, energy exports now so that again, we going back to the efficacy question: is the is it helpful at all? One thing I would like to mention is this was this was all on the sectors, right? So when we move away from the sectors, September 11 attacks kind of uh, paved way for another kind of sanctioning, which is horizontal sanctions or thematic sanctions. So regimes that are only sanctions regimes that only focus on certain themes. For example, wherever wherever there's the threat of terrorism, we will have counterterrorism sanctions. We will have sanctions uh, with regards to proliferation financing. Uh, The European Union in particular is really taking the lead in this front because they they do not come up with, for most part, they will name their sanctions as something that is tied to a theme something that is tied to an idea or a rationale rather than a country or a people in order to avoid um, their own sanctions regime being challenged in European courts. I feel like that's a very important thing because 
now the EU can come after you and say we can impose sanctions on you because you are not compliant with your human rights obligations. Yeah. Or something pertaining to cybersecurity and data rights protection. They're taking a lot of uh, ownership and they're you know making a lot of strides on that. So the horizontalization of sanctions is also important to study, especially for countries like Pakistan, because now you can't come up with an us versus them narrative. Now there are metrics against which you may or may not have failed and you're being targeted on certain themes. I would also like to plug in the entire FATF situation uh, that we as a country have recently gone through. That was not, Pakistan was not being targeted because of Pakistan itself. It was targeted because within a very, very specific uh, field, a subfield of which was AML CFT obligations, anti-money laundering, countering financing of terrorism obligations, we were found to be not compliant with FATF standards initially. And that's what brought us in the crosshairs. And then we had to really do some targeted work in order to improve our compliance. And that's another story, of course. But the idea is that, so you you can't just be sanctioned because you're a country and your country's behavior is out of line. You can also be sanctioned because your country is failing on certain metrics that other countries are trying to, you know, create a create a regime about. So so that's important to note as well. I think I think it's important um, uh, with regards to what you said about the September 11 attacks. I think in in and more so in this resurgent multipolar world, if I may call it that. Um, Because, you know, now I think you need to have done something so reprehensible that no one can, you know, avoid sanctioning you. When when the 9-11 attacks took place, I think it was one of the brief moments in this, in the current world order where everyone was unanimous in sanctioning the Taliban or or whoever was behind, like wherever the the attacks originated from. Mm -hmm. Um, But then that also brings another issue. who decides whether someone's committed a crime or not. So, for example, um, you have these lists of globally designated terrorists. There was recently a case where Pakistan had nominated an Indian national of being who should, according to the Pakistani government, be on that list. But the U.S. turned that down. Mm -hmm. So, again, what we see, I'm not saying whether that person should or should not be on that list, Mm -hmm. but there is a political angle to that as well. And then I think that goes, ties in with what you uh, call this new, this new thematic, way of sanctioning because you know if you can pin the certain bad activities on someone Mm -hmm. or like who their behavior falls under certain categories then they can be sanctioned but i also want to highlight another thing um and i think this is where a lot of people have misconceptions sanctions do not always involve punishing you sometimes there are also positive sanctions in that you're not being punished uh for doing something but you're being incentivized so so like you mentioned the gsp plus regime so if you um if you so for example if you are not doing so and so if you or if you do so and so we will give you the following incentives mm-hmm. so they are trying to incentivize what they believe to be good behavior yeah. and on this note i'll also like uh, uh, I, I i i'd also like it if you could uh, elaborate the gsp plus scheme a little bit especially with regards to pakistan what it means and should pakistan in your opinion uh, fulfill all the conditions uh, b- that are being highlighted in the news these days? So um, that's a very good angle of looking at it because this is exactly uh, why it is important for us to understand these regimes that are in place and will be uh, relevant for our foreign policy. The GSP plus system basically is a generalized uh, preference system where selected countries 
will be given better trade terms. And uh, most of these revolve around exemption of taxes, exemption of duties. That would make your goods very, very competitive abroad. And uh, when your goods are cheap abroad, of course, that will increase your exports. And I'm sorry to sorry to cut across. This is only for the EU, right? This is just for the European Union. So, so the EU imposes this scheme. The EU, yeah, this is an EU-based scheme, and it is uh, applicable for all countries of the world. Uh, basically, the European Union, what it wants in lieu of these uh, better trade terms, is the fact that you, as a country, uh, are compliant with major human rights conventions and treaties. Most of these are UN-based conventions and treaties. So it's not just you um, signing and ratifying them, but actively working to promote uh, their implementation within the country. So in in the beginning, that for, for Pakistan at least revolved around, um, you know, ensuring women's rights, children's rights, labor laws, uh, you know, banning child labor, uh, things of that sort. It also revolved around um, uh, promoting freedom of speech, uh, uh, you know, ensuring minority rights. For example, those are just an example. But now um, the European Union sent a delegation recently, uh, I think just a few weeks back. Uh, and in the report that was devised afterwards, they recommended that Pakistan sign on to a certain number of extra conventions. And uh, those can be a bit more politically contentious. They include the Rome Statute, uh, which means that Pakistan would agree to be, to be bound by the International Criminal Court, which means that Pakistan can take any country to the ICC for, um, you know, for prosecution of war crimes and genocide, but also that Pakistan is opening itself up to is opening itself yeah. to that kind of prosecution as well. So sure. Pakistan can take a case there, or Pakistan can be taken there by any other country. So there are of course risks involved with that, and that's where we see the weaponization of the EU's uh, GSP plus system to get countries to sign on to conventions in lieu of uh, better trade terms. And, and that's important. Yeah. No, no, sorry. Uh, so, and I think from a global South perspective, like, yeah. you know, so we don't have the capacity to partake in the development of international law or in some of these treaties. Yes, we that's do. True. We are able to send delegations, but uh, our expertise is not up to par with, with many of our European counterparts. That's and true. when I think of these, th these new sanction, uh, sa sanctions in, in the context of what you explained with the GSP plus, mm -hmm. Don't you think this is some form of cultural hegemony that's being imposed on us? So, you know, yeah. so without taking any position on some something which is very contentious in a lot of Muslim countries, let's say the LGBT issue, yeah. right? So I'm not saying whether Pakistan should or should not sign it. Mm -hmm. But there are things which are accepted in the West, mm -hmm. which might not be accepted in other parts of the world, and especially true. for a lot of Muslim countries. Mm -hmm. But when you tie them to such lucrative economic incentives, yeah. you're basically asking them to toe your cultural line. But that just leaves us with a very homogenous kind of global culture, which I, I don't think is, is, mm -hmm. is an attractive prospect, not to me at least personally. That's uh, that's the you know that's the entire debate behind the new liberal agenda, as a lot of people like to say. Um, the fact that you are not just economically in terms of, so the EU GSP plus still gives a lot of autonomy in 
in terms of what kinds of products you can export abroad. But when you have something even more, um, for lack of a better term, uh, <laughs> Uh, something that are more intervention based. So, uh, for example, the IMF review and the IMF's policies or the World Bank's policies or any of these global lending organizations, they rely on certain principles. And I'm not talking about the cultural hegemonic uh, debate uh, in particular, but just neoliberal ideas of how you should run your country, yeah. how you should run your economy. And maybe some economies are not suited to that model. But you are being, you know, in lieu of, say, $2 billion, you're being told this is how, this is the, these are the austerity measures you should be, um, you know, imposing, this is what you should be doing. And it's like a one size fits all approach that may or may not. And I think probably does not work for a lot of countries. And also, I think it's important. So again, without taking any position on what kind of political or economic system works, you have China, which is flourishing economically. Yeah very uh, they have a very particular political system you have saudi arabia and the gulf states yep. who which are monarchies and uh, they have a very different political system you have countries in the west like germany and france they're doing very well economically right. very different political system yeah. so you can't really say like um, that oh you all have to follow the same system because mm-hmm. they, all of them are flourishing by by you know developmental standards that okay their economy is doing well their gdp is mm-hmm. is good everything is going well so yeah you're right and i and i think my my main issue is with all of this that it's the 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 poor countries in the global south that suffer not that's all can and mm-hmm. and that's basically the problem and in a way mm-hmm. i think you end up perhaps stifling their growth because what works as you said what works for germany might not work for pakistan that's and, true. and vice versa that's true. Also, it's 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 uh, important to discuss the global South's view on sanctions as well because we have ranging we have UN General Assembly resolutions where countries of the South, predominantly African Latin American countries and certain Asian countries, which have passed a, a resolution saying that the application and the broad scale application of unilateral sanctions are disruptive to our economies and create human rights concerns for us. We have examples of uh, human rights council documents, for example, where um, I believe uh, in an advisory committee for the human rights council, legal experts from around the world gave examples of how the broad scale application of sanctions was not just hindering um, development, but also infringing on human rights when sanctions were imposed. And interestingly, in one document, uh, uh, we found that uh, Pakistan's case when it came to the Iran gas pipeline was discussed uh, as a a potential human rights infringement case because you have this one country that is now forced to pay $5 million every single day because it cannot fulfill its contractual obligations within a a background of extremely high inflation, extremely high unemployment, power crises, and economic crises. And all this is because of the threat of you being potentially exposed to sanctions because Iran is being sanctioned. And countries are suffering because of that. Um, This kind of leads to another form of sanctions which only the US imposes, which is secondary sanctions or extraterritorial sanctions. Which means, basically, I think there's no better example than Iran. Um, Whether we want to use Iran as a transit state 
or whether we want to engage with Iran, not the sanctioned actors uh, of Iran, but just the non-sanctioned actors of Iran. But just because the word Iran is so contentious, none of we are scared of attracting sanctions regimes on ourselves. Because the U.S. can say, hey, you are in violation of dealing with Iran and you've been told not to deal with Iran. So therefore, we're going to impose some economic costs on you as well. And that's how the isolation scheme is supposedly set in place. The European Union doesn't do that. No other country does that. But this is something that creates an even bigger question of uh, the future of sanctions regimes and how this could be one way of controlling the world in a place, you know, in, in a setting where wars have failed for right. the most part. And so. that was going to be my like final question to you before as we wrap up. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think is going to be the futures of future of sanctions, especially as I said in the beginning, in this uh, in in a multipolar world where China is growing as a like I don't know if if we can call it a great power now, but it's right. certainly moving towards that point. Mm -hmm. Russia is very resurgent and they are completely cashing in on their their energy resources in in, in the ongoing crisis. Yeah. Um, and also because both of these countries now, as I mentioned earlier, provide alternate pathways. So if, mm -hmm. if eventually the U.S. Uh, does decide to sanction, you're like, OK, fine, I'll, I'll align with Russia, I'll align with, uh, I'll align with China. Are we going back to the Cold War era where mm -hmm. you will completely alienate yourself from one great power, but you, that's only because you can align yourself with another, mm -hmm. another great power? Have an excess of powers yeah. like that. Um, it's very interesting because uh, we've, we've discussed this and I've mentioned this before as well, that the world is in flux. And this, whatever is being, whatever is done right now, sets a precedent for the future. And this time is very important for scholars and academics uh, to, it's important for them to sit and analyze and understand the power dynamics because what is being established right now will become the accepted practice in the future. And from whatever research I've done, it is increasingly clear that military interventions do not, they're, they're not, they're not an option that is favorable to the countries that want a military intervention either because of the economic costs that they carry. Say Afghanistan, where however many billion dollars, uh, US dollars were spent or trillions of UN dollars, US dollars were spent and uh, all for what? Or if you go and take other examples, you'll see that countries now want to move away from the military option. What else is left? This is this non-armed coercive measures in the form of... But, and, 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 and I know I said last question for the previous question, but one last question. So yes. military, you say military is no longer an option. Research says it's not... It's being, huh, it's being reduced. Yeah. Research says that sanctions do not always work. Yep. What is the future pathway? And um, if you can also um, if you can also include in your answer how Pakistan can navigate this whole global sanctions regime, especially in light of, um, as you mentioned before, our ongoing energy crisis. Yeah. So uh, I really like the way how you've, uh, you know, succinctly brought this together. Military interventions, not the way to go. Sanctions, academically research-based, uh, may or may not work, usually don't work. Yep. Um, so where do we go? What is going to be the future? It's still going to be more sanctions. Okay. It's still, it might not work for some countries, but with... With new avenues such as horizontalization, you know, thematic sanctions, or when you sanction individuals, or when you sanction targeted sectors, the narrower you go, the, the more you're able to achieve your objectives. 
and that means that your sanctions regime was successful. Right. That also means that you get to sidestep some of the human rights uh, considerations that can come out of your sanctions regime. Having said that, sanctions design is such a um, is such a nebulous sort of a field, and again, no, there's no one size fits all uh, solution here. Uh, sanctions are, whether we like them or not, they're here to stay. And uh, this is where I'm going to plug in the Pakistan part of the question here, that this is how the world is going to be. The world order is going to be uh, based on sanctioning power, carrots and sticks. And it is essential to understand and analyze the laws that um, legalize sanctions you have to understand another thing here, which is, again, goes back to the multipolarity part of your question. In the past, we saw that a lot of sanctions were imposed through the UN, so multilateral forms of uh, imposition, which are uh, which carry which have greater reach and they are more legitimate as well, and have some form of uh, uh, accountability as well. Now we we see countries moving away from multilateral forums and going towards unilateral forums. So the U.S. will have its own sanctions regime and it may or may not require the U.N.'s approval. That is fine. The U.S. can go and impose its own sanctions. U.S. exceptionalism. <laughs> that's, Same that's, how, that's how they defend the, the American exceptionalism to international law and global 100%, order. 100%. But we see the U.K. doing the same. We see Australia doing the same. We see Japan doing the same. So countries are now in favor of moving towards, you know, their own sanctions regime that would allow them to basically achieve their own foreign policy objectives without them having, you know, without having everything being vetted by the UN system. Right. So now it becomes, where does Pakistan go from here? Coming back to the question, it's um, increasingly important to understand the laws of sanctions. It's increasingly understand, uh, important for Pakistani stakeholders to go through the text of the U.S. legislation, the U.S. law, um, and understand what are the exceptions here. It is increasingly important for us to go through major international conventions, especially those to which we're signatory to, World Trade Organization conventions and agreements, uh, to see if there's any leeways or exemptions that can be uh, that can be applied and economically because the country is going through a bit of a tough time economically find find sources to sidestep these sanctions and at the same time on multilateral forums uh, raise their voice against the wholesale application of uh, secondary sanctions because global south is doing the same so many countries in the global south they have the same narrative and at the same time come up with avenues and ways where your interests can be protected but your that is to say your economic interests can be protected but you can still still participate as an active member of the global community and participate within the international community so those are big questions and you know they might not be like targeted interventions uh, in that regard but these are important questions to consider you know we, we started off with the Russia-Ukraine conflict and how some countries have been making the most of that situation. Mm-hmm. I recently read a figure that India's current foreign exchange reserves are around $500 billion. Wow. And I think um, I'll, I'll borrow something you've said a lot with regards to Pakistan's FATF situation in, in, in your other work, that until we become 
uh, until we become economically self-sufficient and economically strong we may not like the game but we still have to play it and we still have to learn the rules of how to play the game 100% otherwise because as you said the sanctions uh, regime is here to stay yeah. at least for for the near future yeah. however long that may be yeah. on on that note we'll uh, conclude our discussion today thank you so much noor for joining thank us thank you and uh, thank you to our audience for tuning in we hope you tune in for future episodes as well thank you